coming up next on passion struck i did not manage change properly and that really was tough to shake the only way to overcome that is massive success which i had my first year we were number one in the country we beat duke at duke we were tied for the acc championship and then my second year we had the worst record in carolina basketball history so now the floodgates could open it still bothers me there's still moments there's always triggers for me north carolina the university the basketball program college basketball those triggers tough emotions and at first i try to be a tough guy and act like there's no big deal it's just part of the business and things happen and i was working with an executive coach at the time and she said no no you trusted this institution these men when you were 17 years old now you feel betrayed by a father figure that made me realize that what i was feeling was real it allowed me to deal with it a little bit better Welcome to Passion Struck. Hi, I'm your host, John R. Miles, and on the show, we decipher the secrets, tips, and guidance of the world's most inspiring people and turn their wisdom into practical advice for you and those around you. Our mission is to help you unlock the power of intentionality so that you can become the best version of yourself. If you're new to the show, I offer advice and answer listener questions on Fridays. We have long form interviews the rest of the week with guests ranging from astronauts to authors, CEOs, creators, innovators, scientists, military leaders, visionaries, and athletes. Now, let's go out there and become Passion Struck. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to episode 402 of Passion Struck, ranked by Apple as the number one alternative health podcast. And thank you to all of you who come back weekly to listen and learn how to live better, be better, and impact the world. If you're new to the show, thank you so much for being here, or you simply want to introduce this to a friend or a family member, and we love it when you do that. We have episode starter packs, which are collections of our fans' favorite episodes that we organize in convenient playlists that give any new listener a great way to get acclimated to everything we do here on the show. Either go to Spotify or passionstruck.com slash starter packs to get started. And I have a special invitation for you. At the beginning of the year, we started a 50-week challenge to inspire you to become your most passion-struck self. We're now into week four of this challenge, and I invite all of you to join it. You can do so by signing up for our newsletter at passionstruck.com. I also am excited to introduce our new Passion Struck quiz. It's a unique opportunity for you to discover where you stand on the Passion Struck continuum. Are you an imitator, an orchestra, or a vanquisher? Take the quiz on passionstruck.com and find out which one resonates more with your journey to living a Passion Struck life. In case you missed it, earlier this week, I interviewed Jen Gottlieb, a towering figure in the realm of personal branding and authentic communication. Jen, with her illustrious background as a VH1 host, Broadway actress, and co-founder of Super Connector media brings a rich tapestry of experiences to the table. Her best-selling book, Be Seen, is not just a title, it's a manifesto for those seeking to make a genuine impact in their field. I also wanted to say thank you for your ratings and reviews. If you love today's episode or Jen's, we would appreciate you giving it a five-star review and sharing it with your friends and families. I know we and our guests love to see comments from our listeners, and we so appreciate it when you share these episodes with your family and friends. Throughout the month of January, as we near the launch of my new book, Passion Struck, I'm going to feature guests who signify what it truly means to live a passion struck life. Today, I'm absolutely thrilled to be joined by an incredible guest, Coach Matt Doherty. For those of you who might not be familiar with Matt, let me paint a picture for you. Matt had an illustrious career in basketball, both as a player and a coach. He was a starting forward on the 1982 North Carolina 
national championship team coached by the legendary Dean Smith. And he played alongside some of the greatest names in basketball history, including Michael Jordan, James Worthy, Sam Perkins, and Brad Doherty. Following his playing career, Matt moved into coaching, serving as the head coach at both the University of Notre Dame and UNC as alma mater. In 2001, he was even named the National Coach of the Year. But in 2003, Matt faced one of the toughest moments in his career. He was forced to resign. This brings us to the theme of today's episode, Rebound. How do you bounce back when you've been knocked down? How do you rebuild yourself and prepare for your next opportunity? Matt Doherty has lived through these challenges and more, facing adversity, betrayal, and moments of self-doubt, both on and off the court. In our episode, Matt takes us on a journey through his life, sharing with us the highs and lows, the moments of triumph, in the moments of despair. Through his story, Matt demonstrates what true leadership looks like, even in the face of suffering and setbacks. In our discussion, Matt will share with us some of the valuable lessons he has learned about leadership. He will talk about the long and winding road to becoming a leader, the unexpected twists and turns that life can throw at you, and the importance of being dedicated enough to find the answers no matter how tough the questions may be. Leadership is not about being born with a certain set of skills or characteristics. It's about learning, growing, and developing as a person. And as Matt will tell us, anyone can become a better leader no matter where they're starting from. So without further ado, let's dive into this incredible conversation with Matt Doherty. Thank you for choosing Passion Struck and choosing me to be your host and guide on your journey to creating an intentional life. Now, let that journey begin. I am absolutely honored and thrilled today to welcome Coach Matt Doherty to Passion Struck. Welcome, Matt. Hey, thank you, John. Well, the reason I have you on here and I wanted to acknowledge it right off the bat was oftentimes I'm requested by listeners of the show to invite guests on. And today, it happens to be a person that you and I both know, Kathleen Martin, from our time yes. in Mooresville. Yes, yes. Kathleen Martin was a great neighbor and a terrific photographer. Yes, she was. She actually took some pictures of my own two kids that are still some of the ones that we most cherish. So I totally agree with you. Yeah. Well, Matt, I wanted to start off. Can you tell us a little bit about your early years and what first drew you to basketball? Oh, gosh, it's ironic you asked that because yesterday, Bobby Knight died, the coach of the Indiana Hoosiers in 1976. His Indiana Hoosier basketball team, led by Scott May, Quinn Buckner, went undefeated. And I really think in the junior high, 6th, 7th, 8th grade is such an impressionable age for young people that I remember watching those games and I was the type of kid that you'd watch the games. Then you go out to the driveway or the park and practice the moves that you saw. And so I grew up playing baseball. Like most kids in my neighborhood, my dad was a minor league pitcher. And then he signed me up for basketball camp in fourth grade. And I just was captivated by it because really a truly a team game, but you can practice it individually and other sports really they're a team, but they're not so much a team game. When you look at some sports, maybe baseball, pitcher versus the batters, one-on-one. And you can't practice baseball by yourself. That That's hard to do. Now with technology and things, you can a little bit better. Football, the same way. You need somebody else. With basketball, I just needed the ball and a dream. And I was good. And so I was blessed to have that opportunity. And 
And then really God blessed me with my height. I'm six, seven, or I used to be now that I'm 61, I think I've lost an inch, but uh, yeah, I just loved the flow of the game, the energy of the game. There was no stoppage. It was constant action. Everyone gets to touch the ball, the communication. It's a beautiful game. So that that's what captivated me. I'm glad you brought up Bobby Knight, and I have a, a fun story about him. I remember visiting my brother and sister who were both students at Indiana, probably it would have been 92-ish, 93-ish, and we went to the Steak and Ale, and during that time, I think if I have the name correct, Calvin Chaney was one of the stars on the team, and we're sitting there eating lunch, and I have my back to the booth behind me, and all of a sudden, I hear these people coming up. Hey, coach, how do you think the team's going to be this year? Hey, coach, how do you think this is going to be? And it was like a Hoosier moment. And yeah. I'm like, I can't turn around. I can't turn around. And Bobby Knight was sitting directly behind me. But just the enthusiasm of the townspeople and the way that he was addressing them was just a once in a lifetime thing to see. He's, he was beloved in that state and beloved across basketball. And uh, I had the pleasure of getting to know him, uh, worked with his son, Pat. I played against Bobby Knight's teams. I coached against Coach Knight, and I got to fish with Coach Knight. Not many people get to say those things. Well, let me ask you an interesting question since we're on this topic. You played for Dean Smith. Can you contrast Dean Smith and Bobby Knight? Because they're probably two of the most famous basketball coaches of all time. Yeah, I think their core values are the same. Coach Smith was play hard, play smart, play together. I think Bobby Knight... His culture was could have used those values verbatim. It was all about team play. It was all about playing hard. It was playing smart and playing together. It's just that they communicated that in different ways. Coach Smith never cursed. Never, ever. I don't know anybody that knows, has ever heard Coach Smith curse. Anybody that's been around Bobby Knight has heard him curse. <laughs> <laughs> Bobby Knight's a big man. Like people don't realize how big a man he is. He's probably six, five, a monster guy. Coach Smith, not so much. Coach Smith was probably five, nine, maybe five, 10. Coach Smith was a little more soft-spoken, calculated. The professor, Bobby Knight, was more of the ballroom, rough and tumble, blue collar guy, but they were both teachers. They were both educators and they were both leaders of men. Then they both won without cheating. Yeah, which is an extremely important aspect of it. And I always liked Bobby because I went to the Naval Academy and I love the fact that he got his start coaching at Army. And I could see why those attributes would have been great there. And look what led to Coach K, your rival, and his legendary career. I know as a recruited college athlete myself that you have lots of choices if you're a good athlete of where you eventually end up. What led you to want to play for North Carolina? I think first and foremost, I wanted to win. I wanted to play where basketball was important. I love the ACC, the intensity of the league. I was used to that growing up on Long Island playing. I played for Bob McKillop at Holy Trinity High School. Bob went on to be Steph Curry's coach at Davidson and Dick Zeitler. We had great teams, great energy, great rivalries. I wanted to be a part of that. The ACC was it. The Big East was just starting to get formed. And the ACC was the best conference in the, in the country. So I, my final four schools were Duke. North Carolina, Notre Dame, and Virginia. 
Notre Dame was an independent at the time, but as an Irish Catholic kid out of New York, Notre Dame made a lot of sense for me. But I just felt that Coach Smith was head and shoulders above the others. There's a difference in the temperament, in the feel, and the vibe around the program. And I felt year in, year out, we'd be in the top 10 with the chance to win a national championship. And my first year, we made it to the national championship game, ironically losing to Bobby Knight in 1981. That was the day Ronald Reagan got shot. And then 82, we won it. And then 83, we ranked number one in the country and lost in the final eight. And then my senior year, we probably had my best team. And we lost to Indiana in 1984 to an Indiana team that wasn't great. Steve Alford was a freshman, but it was amazing how things were woven between Indiana and North Carolina. Bobby Knight, Dean Smith, my two teammates, Sam Perkins and Michael Jordan, ended up playing for Bobby Knight in the 1984 Olympics, winning the gold medal. So, yeah, really cool how the programs are very similar with their core values. And I could say the same about Duke. And you could say the same about most organizations. Alabama football, they're all about the process. They're all about sacrificing for the good of the team. They're all about hard work. They're all about paying attention. And I do a lot of talk about the organizational triangle where every organization is made up of talent systems and culture. And talents at the top, you have systems, you have culture. And the better systems you have, the better culture you have, the better your talent will perform, the better talent you'll attract, the better talent you'll retain. However, at the end of the day, culture is king. Now, you could have great systems and great talent, but if your culture stinks, you're not going to perform at a high level. You could have average talent, average systems, but if you have a, a great culture, you can be successful. And so I love talking about culture, and we talk about the word intentional. That has to be intentionally driven. You just can't let your well, people do. You could have a default culture like, okay, we're just going to, we're going to be who we are. We're going to allow people to do what they want to do. But your culture gets watered down once you get past two people. So I hire you. Okay. We have a culture. It's exciting. High energy. We both show up on time with great energy. We do our tasks. We hold each other accountable, but all of a sudden you hire somebody else. I hire somebody else. Once we start growing past four, we're screwed. So that's when your culture has to be intentional. Your core values have to be written down, well thought out, no more than four core values because people can't remember more than three or four things. That's why phone numbers are three to four digits long, not seven. And, and then your behaviors, what behaviors are sprout from your core values that are written down, that are intentionally followed and then the toughest part john is you have to hold people accountable and that's where people get uncomfortable where hey john you didn't come into work on time is everything okay john you, you your report was supposed to be on my desk by five o'clock on friday and it, i don't have it what what happened and depending on your response then i respond accordingly uh people don't like to have those crucial conversations, but that's all you have in leadership. That's all you have in teams is crucial conversations, and it needs to be driven by core values and behavior. Get ready to supercharge your hiring experience with Indeed, our fantastic partner. 
We at PassionStruck are all about seeking smarter, more efficient ways to do things, and indeed perfectly aligns with this philosophy when it comes to hiring. It's more than just a job site. It's a comprehensive platform that revolutionizes the way you find the perfect candidates. With its powerful matching engine and over 350 million global monthly visitors, Indeed streamlines the hiring process, bringing top talent straight to you. No more sifting through endless unqualified resumes. Indeed does the heavy lifting just for you. And what I love about Indeed is its ability to centralize all your hiring activities. From scheduling interviews and screening applicants to messaging candidates, it's all in one place. During my career, I've hired thousands of employees, and I only wish I had Indeed's efficiency and speed back then. And here's a fact that absolutely blows my mind. 93% of employers, according to a recent survey, say Indeed delivers the best quality matches over other job sites. That's quality and speed hand in hand. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash PassionStruck. Just go to Indeed.com slash PassionStruck right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash PassionStruck. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. I know all those discount codes are difficult to remember, so we put them all at PassionStruck.com slash deals. Now, back to PassionStruck. Thank you for explaining that, because as I had done research on you, one of the core things that Dean Smith had taught you was this value between systems and, as you're saying, the team itself and how they're performing and the culture. How did he go about making sure that those qualities were things that you would follow or not follow? Were there specific ways that he did that? Well, I think this is important. He talks about them in the recruiting process. So when you're onboarding a new employee or recruiting a new employee, are you talking about your core values? Are you talking about the behaviors that are important to your organization? So that way it's not a surprise. Now, some people may not feel comfortable being held to that standard. Okay, good. I want to know that now before I hire them. And then some will lean into that and embrace it and be excited by it. So take you back to my home visit with Dean Smith in 1979. He's in my living room right across from me. My parents are there, pastor from my school, the assistants from North Carolina and coach Smith the topic of playing time comes up and he said to me, you'll be lucky to play by the time you're a junior. Now I hadn't heard that from other schools, like other schools are basically telling me or implying that I'll play a lot as, as a freshman. I leaned in and said to myself, I'll show you. Okay. So I leaned into that. I took it as a challenge. I'm fairly competitive. And I think that's maybe one, what he was testing. Are you willing to compete for playing time? even though you're a high school All-American, to setting expectations that it's not going to be easy. So that way, when it gets hard, he can say, wait a second, remember in your home uh, in September of 1979 when I said you probably won't play till you're a junior. So what part of this is a surprise? So I think that's important, and I think a lot of leaders are afraid to lead with their core values and the difficulties. Ernest Shackleton who led the expedition to the South Pole. It's a great book. I'm drawing a blank on the title of the book, but his recruiting pitch was like it was written in the paper. Men wanted for difficult journey. Now I'm paraphrasing. Terrible weather conditions, limited 
light, chance of loss of life, cold, bitter winters, basically this grim Pete recruiting letter. And at the end, small chance of fame. And he took his men on this endurance, I think was the name of the boat. He took that, and that's the book. He took his men on this journey. They got shipwrecked. No one died. He rescued all of them. But he told them up front, this is going to be hard. You might not live through this journey. But if you do, people will be talking about us forever. And so some people get excited about that. Some people are scared of that. That's okay. That's okay. But now we have a target audience of who we can go after. And we know that when things do get tough, they're going to embrace, they're going to embrace the suck, if you will. Well, I was just going to say your story sounds like a recruiting video for the Navy SEALs and their motto is to embrace the suck. So is it okay? <laughs> yeah. It's not for everybody. And that is okay. We just want a few as the as they say in the military, a few good men. Well that team that you played on at North Carolina had everyone from Michael Jordan, Sam Perkins, James Worthy, Brad Doherty, I the list goes on. All of you could have played in the NBA. All of you were very gifted physically. The thing I wanted to understand is oftentimes I think ego comes from insecurity. And with that type of group of people, you could have had a ton of ego tearing you guys apart. What caused that not to happen? Well, first of all, I do believe ego is indirect proportion to insecurity. The deeper your insecurity, the higher level of ego you have. I think that goes back to Coach Smith. In the recruiting process, you have to evaluate people, evaluate behaviors. So I was talking to somebody about this the other day. I'm an executive coach through an organization called Vistage, which is the oldest executive coaching organization in the country. And he was talking about, what do you look for? And I think these are important things like to ask in interviews, behavioral type questions, because we don't often. We screw it up. We say, oh, yeah, that seemed like a good person, nice guy, nice girl. Would love to have them in my organization. And then you realize they don't show up on time. They sulk. They're energy suckers, not energy givers. Well, you didn't really do your research. So Coach Smith, they would study you like they would ask. They would watch how you behaved. And a friend of mine, a client yesterday said, well, what did you look for besides their way they shot the ball in their stats. I said, I wanted to see how they walked to the bench. How did they take instruction from the coach? When they were subbed out, did they throw a towel and kick the chair? Or did they sit on the bench next to the coaches, listen, and did they cheer for their teammates? What were they like in a huddle? What were, this, were they like taking water from a manager? What did they do when they finished with the cup? Did they throw it? At the manager, do they drop it? Did they leave it? Did they pick it up and put it in the trash? Those little things matter because they show up, especially under stress. Yeah, I happen to be watching The Last Dance for just coincidence. And one of the things that was interesting uh, to me as I was preparing for this is I knew you were going to talk about the triangle. 
And it's interesting because for the early part of Michael Jordan's career at Chicago, pretty much the entire team was built off of giving Michael the ball. But when Phil Knight took over as the head coach, he implemented something called the triangle offense, which de-emphasized Michael in many ways and made it more about finding the person who was open on the court. And you would think a change like that could be very difficult to implement. What do you think led to that success of getting the players and especially Michael on board with that new philosophy? Because as a coach, I imagine that could be very difficult to do. Well, change is difficult. Most people don't like change. And I had the pleasure of talking to Michael about this uh, about a year and a half ago. I played golf with him and we had a long dinner and we talked about things like this. When, and he averaged, I think, that year prior, 35 points a game. But a couple things. One, Michael came from a college program that was successful where the game was based on sharing the ball. So he understood that what it took to win. Now it's, can you trust your teammates? And then is there a system in place that will put the team in position to be successful? And then he could still get his 32 points. Like Michael's a smart guy and he did the math. He said, well, if I, I'll get to the foul line 12 times, I'll make 10. So that's 10 points right there. I'll get the ball in this position. That's an, another 15 points. And then I'll get five more points off of offensive rebounds. If I go 10 times, like he had it broken down. He knew that he could average 30 to 32 points within that offense. And I think believed that it was what the team needed. And especially with the growth of guys like Scottie Pippen, where now he had some people around him, John Paxson could shoot, Steve Kerr can shoot, some guys around him that could contribute and make plays, and it wasn't just him. Yeah, I always thought it was remarkable that set of people who hated the Detroit Pistons. You got to face it, they those two teams did not like each other. To take probably the most hated person on the team they hated the most, Dennis Rodman, and then welcome him with open arms, that yeah. had to be just an incredible feat well, to see. We talked about that. First of all, as you say that, I think of the book Team of Rivals, which is about Abe Lincoln, and how when he became president, he filled his cabinet with people that were running against him, that said bad things about him. But he wanted to win. He wanted to do the right thing for the country. So he was secure enough to surround himself with people that were competitors of his. And I think they respected that and he respected them. With Rodman, Michael tells the story that Phil wanted Rodman. Michael wanted Rodman. Scotty didn't want Rodman. So I guess Scotty got outvoted. But they could manage Rodman. And I think with Phil Jackson and Michael was strong enough leader, strong enough personality, and Dennis would respect that. And I think Rodman wanted to win again. And because I think he was in San Antonio at the time and things weren't going well in San Antonio. Michael tells, this is such great self-awareness. All right. This is, people think of always great, people are great athletes. The best of the best are smart as heck too. So Michael told Scotty when they got Dennis Rodman, listen, Scotty Rodman's identity is defense and rebounds. 
So if we're in the vicinity of Dennis and a rebound comes off the rim, let him get it. Okay. Don't take that away from him. Even though we want to get triple doubles, we want to get double digits and points, rebounds and assists for the good of the team and good of Dennis, let Dennis get the rebound. And he said in New Jersey, Scotty and I forgot about that. And Dennis didn't have any many rebounds and he ended up getting two technicals kicked out of the game and later came to his room and apologized that self-awareness understanding that you can't do it alone it's not it's a team sport right there's an african proverb if you want to go fast go alone if you want to go far go together so michael came from that type of environment at north carolina and he understood it and so <laughs> then this is the genius of phil jackson and I think this was in the show, Dennis wanted a break. I think it was like January and he wanted a break from the team. And Phil said to Dennis, well, you'll have to talk to Michael. You'll have to get Michael's approval. How about that? Here's the head coach saying you have to get Michael's approval. How brilliant was that? So Michael gets in got involved in a conversation and he says, heck, if anybody deserves a break during the middle of the season, it's me. But Michael was aware enough, had the emotional intelligence to understand that Dennis needed this break. And Dennis's role was limited. It was important, but it was limited. It was like you don't need Dennis to shoot or really be involved in the offense so much, except from the rebounding. They agreed to give Dennis like a weekend in Vegas or wherever he wanted, but it was Vegas. Well, the weekend turned to four days to five days. Who flies to Vegas? shows up, wakes up Dennis and the companion in the bed and tells Dennis, pack your bags, we're going back to Chicago. Michael, that's leadership. So Dennis gets back to Chicago and Jackson, Phil Jackson wants to get make sure Dennis is in shape. So they do this thing, you probably can't say it anymore, an Indian run, where the last person in the line, they're running around the court, has to race to the front. And then so it's continual. The last person races to the front of the line. So you're getting some sprinting in and they're like, we couldn't catch Dennis. Dennis has been in Vegas for seven days and he's still in a freakish shape, but it takes a team led organization is the best led organization. When you have leadership that hold each other accountable, that's when real magic happens. Well, that leads me into asking, you made the transition from player to coach. How did your experience as a player influence your approach to the way you coached? Yeah, that's a great question. I think a couple things. One, I think you have to answer why to a player. You can't just tell somebody, do it this way. Yeah, you got to explain the why. And when I played back then, we had seniors and coached. Smith didn't really like you asking questions in practice, so he would just do it. He was very efficient, and he explained the why some, but as a young player, I think that it was really important to understand the why because then you'll be more committed to it. I, I would try to be very cognizant of that. And then as a player, one of the things I was attracted to, Coach Smith, I was a smart player. I like to use my brain. And I like to outsmart the opponent. I like to trick it up a little bit. I wanted to throw in some variations that kept me interested as a player. And I didn't want to just do the same thing every day 
every practice, every game. So I like to throw in some wrinkles to surprise the opponent and adjust to trends during the season. And when I had players that could make those adjustments, uh, that was a lot of fun for me. My team at Notre Dame could really do it. And ironically, well, my team's at North Carolina. I'm thinking of a play right now at Maryland that we put in in, in a timeout, just a little wrinkle. And uh, we got a bucket. And then my team at North Carolina, my last year, I had three freshmen, two sophomores, extremely smart team led by Jawad Williams, Jackie Emanuel, Sean May, Raymond Felton, and Rashad McCants. And we were playing Kansas in the garden. My assistant, Doug Wojcik said, hey, why don't we do this? And I drew it up in a timeout. They went out and executed. We got a bucket. That's a lot of fun as a coach. Well, speaking on these lines of coaching, you had a meteoric rise. You first worked under Coach McKillop, who you talked yep. about at Davidson. And I remember Steph Curry being there because he was at Davidson during the time that I lived in Mooresville. Then you went to Kansas and got to work under Coach Roy Williams before you became a coach at Notre Dame. Can you provide some of the inner workings, some of the insights, to the inner workings of a big time basketball program and the power struggles that are happening behind the scenes? Because I think it's something that a viewer probably has no idea happens. Yeah. When you say power struggles, you're talking about within the program or outside the program. I'm talking more outside the program, like what a, the coach has to coach the team, but there's this whole other aspect of being a coach inside an athletic system that I yeah. think people don't understand, plus the alumni, et cetera. Yeah, no, it's a large enterprise. Uh, as an executive coach, when I took over coaching early on, people would say, well, what do you know about running a business? Well, you're just a basketball coach. And I said, well, I was the head basketball coach at Notre Dame. I was the head basketball coach at North Carolina. We had large budgets, multi-million dollar budgets. We drove large revenue, multi-million dollar revenue. We had a board of directors. I had to deal with the media, attract talent, train talent, retain talent, fire talent. I had five direct reports and an enterprise of close to 50 in terms of headcount, full-time employees, if you will. So as I talk along those lines, the people I was talking to would nod their head like, oh, okay, I get it. You are the CEO of North Carolina basketball. I'm like, exactly. So on a college campus, there's a lot of dynamics. And one is the professors. The professors, I remember when I first signed my contract at North Carolina, I was walking to a sporting event, a soccer, a lacrosse game, and there was a professor walking next to me. And he said, uh, a nice contract, or I saw your contract on the paper because it's public domain at his state university. And I said, I'll tell you what, I'll trade you my contract for your tenure made them quiet. You're under the gun. I think a lot of people don't embrace the fact that whether you like it or not, in a college campus, the sports programs are the front porch of the university. They are the marketing arm of the university. And once people get it and embrace it, then you could have success. You don't want to fight that. Now, as a coach, you have to be humbly confident. I'm, I, I was trying to coin this phrase, confident humility, humbly confident, but you have to have a stance that, hey, you know, yeah, this 
if we have a good football program at North Carolina or good basketball program, look what the impact that Nick Saban has had on the city of Tuscaloosa and admissions at Alabama. Like that school now attracts students from all over the country. I was down there last year for the Iron Bowl and I, my brother and I were there and we bumped into somebody and asked this young lady, a student, where are you from? She said, Long Island. I said, Long Island. That's where I'm from. I'm like, why would you go to the University of Alabama? Oh, I wanted to go to a place where there was good football and exciting and um, came down here to visit the weather, the campus. Like, but that's Nick Saban. And so he's getting paid $10 million a year. And people say, well, I can't believe he's getting paid $10 million a year. But would you pay an advertising company $10 million a year to attract students from all over the country and raise the profile of your university? Probably there's real value in sports, but not a lot of people, not everybody on campus sees it. And there's some jealousy because you go back to the ego topic. We're all little kids dressed up as adults playing in a sandbox. Okay. Everyone has a default emotion of that's my toy. That's mine. You can't play with it. They want to protect their domain. So when somebody comes in like a Nick Saban, like me, it's important that you are confident, but you have humility and that you try to create goodwill on campus because that professor across campus who's making, let's say, I don't know, let's say $150,000 and you're making $1.5 million, there's a chance for them to be jealous and have animosity. So how do you approach them? Well, Bob McKillop used to say, kill them with kindness. So just be nice, be humble, and show appreciation for the job they do in educating the student body. Yeah, well, Matt, thank you for sharing that. And one of the books that I have used throughout my career, the first 90 days, and I have found that when I have used that and the principles in it, that I have had tremendous success in the roles that I go into. But there are times when I have applied perhaps the 90 days too quickly. And one of the things that I've learned is that sometimes the first impressions that you make in those 90 days are very hard to undo. Have you ever experienced something like this? Oh, 100%. That's where I look back at my time at North Carolina. When I took over, managing change is an art form. And you can't do it the same way at every institution you work at. I wrote a book, Rebound from Pain to Passion, and I talk about the first 90 days. And at Notre Dame, list the six no's of leadership, K-N-O-W-S. And I use an acronym that I made up called Stevit, S-T-E-V-I-T. I make a story up that it's an Eastern European kid that I recruited, a seven-footer with grades named Stevit. So you have to know yourself. You have to know your team. You have to know your environment. That's where this comes up. You got to know what environment are you stepping into? Have they had success? Was there a longtime CEO or head coach that was beloved? Or was there a short timer that they didn't really feel loyal to? What's the people on campus? Do they support athletics or are they fighting athletics? So you have to know your environment and then you have to know your vision. 
you have to know your industry and then you have to mine for the truth. And so the environment, when I took over at Notre Dame, they wanted change. So when I instilled change, they supported it. When I got to North Carolina, they had 36 years of continued success under just two coaches and they were both still in the building. They did not want change. They didn't think they needed change. However, they did. They just didn't know it. The program had gotten a little soft. They needed to instill some toughness, some change. They didn't lift weights on a regular basis. So I came in and brought my staff with me, which I was told I could. I asked a question of the athletic director, um, but that was shunned upon. And I changed the physical plan. It needed to be updated. Recruits look at things like your office and locker rooms, and they hadn't changed the office or locker room in, in years. Making those changes, people took that some as disrespectful to the traditions of the program. So looking back, I should have gone slower with change. However, in basketball, you generally get a new job in March. I got this job in July. So I had to really put things on hyper speed and that just exacerbated the process of managing change. And it went too fast. And I had four secretaries who has four secretaries. And so that had been there probably an average of 20 years each. So I did not manage change properly. And that really was tough to shake. The only way to overcome that is massive success, which I had my first year. We were number one in the country. We beat Duke at Duke. We were tied for the ACC championship. And then my second year, we had the worst record in Carolina basketball history. So now the floodgates could open. Well, I can relate to everything you're saying. I ended up taking a job. I had been working at Lowe's for many years, right in your own backyard. And then I took a job to work as a senior executive at Dell. And coming into Dell, Michael had told me that the organization had gotten stagnant and that they needed someone to come in and institute change. The thing I didn't realize going to your know your environment was I didn't really understand Michael's leadership style, which was he is pretty passive in the way he leads. Although he wanted these things to happen, he wasn't going to get into conflict to see that he got his way. And so what I faced when I came in was I was trying to change a battleship and do it in ways that were going to rapidly get us to where we needed to be because underneath he was trying to change the whole company and we needed new systems and processes in order to do that. But what I underestimated was the fact that so many of the leaders had been there for so long and they loved the way that things were as they stood. Mm -hmm. And so I didn't realize the barriers I was going to run into. And I think one of the fundamental mistakes I made, and I know you talk about in the book, not retaining Phil Ford, I had an employee named Becky, who we're still very good friends to this day, but I ended up letting her go. And as I look back, I really should have retained her because she carried much more weight than I thought in the way that people perceived the organization. And she was this tie, if I would have brought her on board more between the past and what I wanted to do in the future. But I know exactly what you're talking about because I started to try and push things too quickly and underestimated the organization's willingness to follow me. 
You have to inspire followership that people aren't going to follow a title. They're going to follow a person that inspires them, that they respect. And it was really probably nothing against you. It's probably nothing against me. We were put in tough situations. And I'm sure looking back, even though I'm a literal person. So if you say you want change and I'm, I get excited about instituting change, I'm going to institute change because that's what you said. But sometimes you have to read between the lines and somebody like Michael Dell says, I want change. He probably really does want change, but just don't make it so abrupt that it rocks the world of Dell and annoys my people. So how do you do it tactfully, subtly, as you talked about, you alluded to navigating a battleship in the harbor, turning a battleship takes a long time. But I wanted to, I was driving a speedboat. I was driving, yeah, I was driving a, one of those long cigarette boats and people were falling off the back, drowning. And that cost me my job. Well, Matt, I know personally it's taken me years. And even now I'm still not over what happened at Dell because it was something that I considered to be a family. And I know for you, this idea of the Carolina family took on even more meaning because you were there since you were 18 years old. And it had been a group that you had respected and had been a proud member of. Can you explain, as you do in the book, the devastating emotional impact this event had on you? Yeah. It, as you touched on, it still bothers me. There's still moments and there's always triggers. A heck for you, every time you look at a Dell computer, it probably triggers you. And so, for me, North Carolina, the university, the basketball program, college basketball, those triggers tough emotions and can put me heading into a black hole. And at first I try to be a tough guy and act like there's no big deal. It's just part of the business and things happen. And I was working with an executive coach at the time and she said, no, you trusted this institution, these men, when you were 17 years old, and now you feel betrayed by a father figure. And so that made me realize that what I was feeling was real. It allowed me to deal with it a little bit better. And then I had to talk to coach Williams. I wanted to talk to coach Smith, but his health wasn't good. I probably waited too long, but I needed to be able to share with coach Williams what I was feeling. He didn't have to agree with that, but I just needed to be heard. That was a big moment for me. I cried like a baby in his office, but he needed to know, and I needed to let that out. I felt a lot better. And then I've had to deal with depression. Like when I, I was good for two years because I was like America's guest. I was doing TV, playing golf, dabbling in real estate. I was having a good time. And all of a sudden I took a job. I took the job at FAU. Ironically, they just went to the final four. And I remember right after the press conference, I went to my office. I didn't have a secretary. So I go from having four secretaries to no secretaries. I go to my office to pull out a drawer to get a pen and the drawer breaks and falls on my lap and pens go flying. And I started to cry that Two years prior, I was the head coach at North Carolina. I had four secretaries to get me any kind of pen I wanted. I was flying private planes, and now I'm at FAU, 
which was one of the worst jobs in college basketball at the time. I dealt serious depression for several months, thought about quitting the job. My wife wouldn't let me quit. She's a tough lady. She's like, you took this job, you have these assistants, you can't do that to them. I'm like, you're right. But I was crippling. It was crippling. And then finally the season started and I realized I love basketball. Whether it was coaching basketball at North Carolina or FAU, I had the opportunity to do this, coach basketball and influence young men. So for the listener who may be tuning in, who might find themselves in a place that you and I were, it is not easy to rebound. Your head gets squarely in your way. You lose confidence. You start doubting your worthiness. How did you find that inner strength and courage to seek help? And what advice would you give to someone who's maybe in the same position you and I were? Well, I think the most important person you need to talk to is God. You need to find your faith. For me, that's God. It's Jesus. It's leaning on my faith. And I, I think that <clears throat> God probably hit me over the head in 2003. It's too much, too fast. You're losing your perspective. You're not putting me first. I have different plans for you. And uh, I do believe that when I go to heaven and I ask him about what happened in 2003, that's basically going to be the story. So uh, I think it's important for me. I, I need maybe to be humbled and get closer to God and have a relationship with him. And along with my wife and my kids, I think putting things in perspective, your identity is so wrapped up in what you do. And I think most successful people they take on that identity, became obsessed with that. And that's not always healthy. So there wasn't a lot of balance in my life. Good friend, John Black, really put me on the path for the leadership journey that I went on. We need to have a personal board of directors. Who's on your personal board of directors? I recommend having God, your spouse, and then just maybe a financial person, somebody who, you know, people that really care about you have your best interests and are going to be honest with you. So John Black directed me to UVA, to Kara Weber, an executive coach there. I worked with her. I went to Wharton, work with Fran Johnston and Jerry Bell, a couple, to name a few, and got excited about the leadership space and realized that if I had taken some of these classes and learned some of these lessons, especially on emotional intelligence, I might have I might still be at North Carolina. I mean, that was 20 years ago. I'm 61. I could still be the head coach at North Carolina. When then I got into executive coaching and I wrote a book, Rebound from Pain to Passion, Leadership Lessons Learned, because I want to help people avoid the landmines I stepped on. Well, Matt, something you just brought up triggered a thought for me, and that is you and I have kids that are relatively about the same age. And I know my son, who is the same age as Jay Martin, they're both 25 now, asks me all the time in this world where so much seems to be changing and it seems like automation, AI, whatever you want to call it, is going to disrupt the way that their careers are going to take shape. What would you say you've learned are four or five of the fundamental skills that they should look to take on that I that could resist any type of change that may come their way? Well, I think you don't necessarily want to resist change. You want to embrace it. 
I think it's like riding a wave. You could resist the wave and get crushed along the shore. You can get up on top of it and ride it. I think the thing that comes to mind when you ask me that question is you need to be curious. You need to be a lifelong learner. You need to uh, consume books, podcasts, articles. You need to embrace AI. At Vistage, we have great speakers. We had a gentleman named Severin Sorensen come speak to my groups last week on artificial intelligence and get excited about it. Don't fear it. Get excited about the change and try to be out in front of it and understand how it can benefit you and your organization. And we're, we're quick to, when there's a lack of communication, our default emotion's negative. So embrace it, study it, play with it. Get chat GPT, it's $19 a month. Start developing a relationship with it. Really, it's almost like a person. And you'll see how it can help your life and your business. And then you'll be empowered in your organization People are afraid, oh, it's going to take over my job. Can't do everything. It can't move. It can't, there's no body language to it. You're still going to need humans. And it's every other technological advancement we've had going back to the automobile, going back to cell phones, going back to electricity, more jobs were created. Yeah, there were some jobs lost, but more jobs were created as a result. And I, I believe that AI will be the same. Yeah, it's like going back to the steam engine, which really brought on the industrial evolution or even back to the printing press. And at those times, people thought those changes were so invasive and look at how they've shaped the world. I always tell, in addition to curiosity, a creativity aspect, the need more now than ever to be vulnerable, the emotional intelligence equation fits in, and then you're going to need to be adaptable. But it, I think it all starts with curiosity. Well, Matt, one of the things, my dad is a huge basketball fan, just enormous to this day, still his, I think his favorite season is watching college basketball. And he always wanted me to be a basketball player. And I unfortunately don't have the height you did. And even though I tried and tried, I was just never that great at it. And at, in the end, it didn't interest me. And Kathleen Martin told me a similar story about your son, if I have it right, his name is Tucker, that you wanted him to play basketball, but he wasn't really interested. What happens when you're a parent and you face a situation like this? Because I know as the son, I felt like I was disappointing my dad. Oh, yeah. Well, first of all, I didn't push basketball, my son. We introduced it. I think that's key. I was blessed. My dad was a minor league baseball player. And sign me up for baseball. I don't know what grade I was in, probably second, playing baseball. I liked it okay. And then he signed me up for basketball camp, and I love basketball. And then I quit baseball in sixth grade. There was no pushback from him. My son, we introduced him. We'd have basketball camps. He was around the game. Signed him up for a church league. He played in Boca when we were in, in Boca Raton at FAU. And then one day, the league was starting. And my wife said that Tucker said he didn't want to play. So I said, I'll ask him. So I said, Tucker, mom said tomorrow's basketball practice. And he was probably six, 
maybe he's older, but he was sitting in a booster seat in the back seat. And I remember being on Brawley School Road. And you can relate to that at a light at Morrison Plantation. And I'm looking in the rearview mirror and he puts his hand out like this. And he said, Dad, I told mom no. And here's like a six-year-old telling me no. And I'm thinking like in a cartoon character, there's above his head that says, hey, dumbass, what part of no don't you get? And I remember just saying, yeah, no problem. You don't have to play. And so uh, he didn't. And he played some football. He picked up lacrosse when we moved to Dallas and fell in love with lacrosse. He ended up being a high school All-American and played D1 lacrosse at Bellarmine. So I don't think you should push your kids. I think you should introduce them to things and let them find what they love. My daughter loved swimming. She swam. And then she ended up rowing at North Carolina. She played basketball one season in Dallas when she was like in sixth grade. So neither one of them played. And I was okay with that. And just as my dad was okay with me not playing baseball. Matt, I have just two short questions left for you. Looking back at your career, what would be your biggest piece of advice that you would give a person starting out their career uh, on the one or two things that if you could, you might've done differently. Yeah, I think, well, go back to the Stevitt, right? You got to know yourself, know yourself, and then know your team. And I'm big on personality assessments. I'm certified in DISC. That really hit me in 2003 when I worked with Kara Weber. I, I did Myers-Briggs assessment and realized that not everyone thinks like me, nor should they. Not everyone views things like I do. There's different perspectives. And I think that's probably one of the biggest things. And once you understand that, you understand your team, I think going slow, I'm a fast-paced, hard-driving guy, going a little slower. And really having a coaching mentality with everybody, not just your players. You know, I, I interviewed... A gentleman, David Novak of Young Brands, and he referred to his team as coaches. And I think that's a different mindset you have when you're coaching your employees versus when you're the boss. And self-awareness is the first key to leadership. Where are your blind spots? Because we all have them. And the better you can understand them, the better off you'll be. And then the second thing, Really, and this is the Stevitt, and the last piece of Stevitt is the second T, which is truth. You got to mine for the truth because if you don't manage the truth, it'll manage you right out the door. So, really, dig for the truth. How do people really feel about you and the processes you're putting in place? Yeah, communicate, communicate, communicate. So, you know, those basically know yourself, know your team, know the truth, and you really got to communicate. You can't over-communicate. Okay. And then lastly, Matt, uh, what are you most proud of in your life and career and what legacy do you hope to leave? Yeah. Great, Chris. The thing I'm most proud of is that I gave up alcohol in 1988. I'm an alcoholic. I had a problem with it and realized it, went, got help, went to AA and hadn't had a drink since. And 11 years later, I became the head coach at Notre Dame. I was working on Wall Street at the time. And without that, without giving up alcohol, I wouldn't have 
found my career that I loved. I wouldn't have found my wife that I love my, I wouldn't have the family that I have. And that's the thing I'm most proud of in my life. And I think that the legacy I'd like to leave is that you need to be able to rebound. You need to be able to model a behavior you want with your children and bounce back because life is hard. You're going to get hit in the face a lot and your kids are watching and you want them to develop resiliency and be able to bounce back from challenges that life will throw you. Well, Matt, it was such an honor to have you on today. If a listener wanted to learn more about you, where's the best place for them to go? Yeah, they go to my website, dartycoaching.com, dartycoaching.com, D-O-H-E-R-T-Y. Well, Matt, thank you so much for being a guest on the show today. It was such an honor. Thank you, John. I thoroughly enjoyed that interview with Matt Doherty, and I wanted to thank Matt and Stephanie McKinley for the honor and privilege of having them appear on today's show. Links to all things Matt will be in the show notes. Please use our website links if you purchase any of the books from the guests that we feature. Links to all things Matt will be in the show notes at passionstruck.com. Please use our website links if you purchase any of the books from the guests that we feature here on the show. All proceeds go to supporting the show. Videos are on YouTube at both our main channel at John R. Miles and our Clips channel at Passion Struck Clips. Please go check them out and subscribe. Advertiser deals and discount codes are in one convenient place at passionstruck.com deals. I also wanted to tell you about the Passion Struck Challenge, which we just launched. This is 50 weeks of custom curated challenges that I will provide you to help you step more boldly into your journey of becoming passion struck. Just go to passionstruck.com forward slash challenges to join the challenge. And if you're interested in signing up for our weekly newsletter, Live Intentionally, you can do so also on the Passion Struck website. If you're interested in our work-related newsletter, Work Intentionally, you can find that on LinkedIn. And you can find me on all the social platforms at John R. Miles, where I post daily. You're about to hear a preview of the Passion Struck podcast interview that I did with Dr. Mark Hyman. We're at the cusp of a revolution in healthcare. And Dr. Hyman is here to guide us on the exciting journey into the future of health. We also explore his new company, Function Health, and also his pioneering concept of using food as medicine, a notion that redefines our relationship between our diets and health. Increasing data is showing that our inflammatory diet is affecting our mental health in profound ways. Ultra-processed foods have been linked to depression, to suicide, to anxiety, to even things like bipolar disease, schizophrenia. Sounds crazy. This is not my opinion anymore. I basically came up with this idea decades ago when I wrote my book, Ultra Mind Solution, about how the body affects the brain. But we're seeing this diseases of despair and an increasing mental health crisis, and it's dwarfing all our other problems. And it's leading us to make bad choices. It's affecting our brain by causing inflammation in the brain. The problem with that is that our impulse control and our executive function, the adult in the room, doesn't have control over the three-year-old in our brain. And that's why we make bad choices. That's why our biology is hijacked. Our, our brain chemistry is hijacked. Our mood is hijacked. Our metabolism is hijacked. Our taste buds are hijacked by the food industry. And so we really have to learn how to take back our health. And part of it is starting to understand what's happening under the hood. The fee for this show is that you share it with family or friends when you find something useful or interesting. If you know someone who could use Matt's advice, on how to rebound, then definitely share this episode with your friends and family members. The greatest compliment that you can give us is to share this show with those that you love and care about. In the meantime, do your best to apply what you hear on the show so that you can live what you listen. And until next week, go out there and become passion struck.